All right. Good morning. It's good to see you this today. It was uh, it was a little rainy this morning, so you guys are just like, well, it's not sunny. We'll come back to church. It's good to be here. <laughs> if you're new with us, you picked a great day to join us because we're starting a new series today. By the way, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we are starting a new series this morning, though. It's called This Changes everything, and I love the title because it really does get to the heart of what we're talking about. In this series, what we're actually doing is we're going to be walking through the New Testament book of Colossians. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead, grab it, pull it out, open to Colossians chapter 1. If you forgot your Bible, that's okay. There's one right in front of you in the pew rack. This morning, we're going to be on page 953 in the pew Bibles. And um, as we get going, as you turn to Colossians chapter 1, let me get you up to speed. The year is A.D. 60 or so. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And while he's there, he's visited by a dear friend and co-worker of his named Epaphras. Now, years earlier, under Paul's direction, Epaphras had started a church, a church in his hometown of Colossae. And on this visit to Rome, visiting Paul in prison, Epaphras gives Paul an update on how the church is doing. And overall, he says they're doing very well. But he also mentions that there are some cultural pressures, some some new life philosophies that are tempting the Colossians to turn away from the gospel, and more specifically, to not allow Jesus to completely change their hearts and lives. So in response to this news, Paul determines to write. And he sends Epaphras back to this church with a letter in hand. And this letter is written to remind them and encourage them and exhort them to pursue the growth and life and total heart transformation God offers them in Jesus. And that is the letter that we will study in these four weeks. That's the New Testament book of Colossians. This letter Paul writes from prison to these Jesus followers at Colossae. So we're going to dive right in this morning. Here is how it begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, when you read this introduction, this is a pretty standard introduction for Paul. He often, as he writes letters, uses a format somewhat similar to this. But there's a couple things, a couple things in this introduction that stick out to me I want to point out to you. First of all, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. He's writing to the church, but he's not writing to the church corporate. He's not writing to a church building. He's not writing to an organization. He's not even writing to church leadership. What Paul understands very clearly is something that you and I are very tempted to forget, that the church is the people. Paul says it this way, faithful brothers and sisters. That's who he's writing. That's who he's addressing. The faithful brothers and sisters, not the people who are really good Christians, faithful, people that are full of faith, people that are pursuing faith, pursuing, trusting in Christ. Listen to how William Barclay says this line. Yeah, waking up now, aren't you? (laughs) Paul sends his greetings not to a kind of abstract society called the church, 
but rather to the individual men and women of whom the church must always be composed. You see, this letter, friends, is not written to some organization or corporation, but to a community, to people. This is a letter not for us, but for you. This is a letter for me. This is written straight to us. And here's the other thing he says I think we must not miss. Paul is writing to people who he says are in two very different places. He says they are in two places. First of all, they are in, he says, Colossae. They are people who are from a city and a society and a culture and a world where they are called to engage and be fully present. That's the New Testament mandate for followers of Jesus. Be fully present, be fully engaged, be fully committed to the society, to the city, to the town, to the place where God has put you. He says they are in Colossae. But he also says they are in Christ. In Christ. Friends, we are all in our own Colossae. We are all surrounded by a culture and a society that has positives and negatives, ups and downs, strengths and weaknesses. But we must never forget this. We are also in Christ. And that it's Christ who must set the tone for our life and living. It's Christ, no matter where you live, no matter where God sticks you, that must set the tone for your life and living. And that is why he writes this letter. That's Paul's aim, that our hearts will be fully transformed by the gospel of Jesus, that he will have transforming power over everything in our world and in our lives. So tune in. We're going to cruise through this book kind of quickly. Four chapters in four Weeks, And I know some of you are not going to like this. Some of you are going to struggle when we move past or slide past or skim over things in this book that you think need more attention. And let me tell you, no one is going to struggle with that more than me. I'm writing the sermons. (laughs) But let me challenge you to think of this experience and this letter in particular like the Grand Canyon. How many here have been to the Grand Canyon? How many in here have hiked in the Grand Canyon? Yeah, okay, all right, that's pretty good. Sometimes it's great to hike the Grand Canyon, to get down in it, to get up close and personal with one little part of it. But there's also something beautiful, something wonderful, something valuable in experiencing the Grand Canyon from the air. To be a helicopter, to be in a helicopter and to see it from 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 feet, because friends, that's what we're going to do for these next four weeks in Colossians. We're gonna experience it from a helicopter. So enjoy the view, and when you find yourself wishing that you could get a little closer, that we would dive a little deeper, remember this, we can and will come back to go hiking another time, okay? So aerial view of Colossians, here we go, verse three. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. 
You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Friends, after his introduction, here's the first thing Paul does. In these first eight verses, his primary goal is this, to offer these Colossian Christians a reminder. He says, remember what you have heard. Remember what you've been offered. Remember what you have received, the good news of Jesus. Paul says, do not forget about the joy that came into your life when Epaphras showed up and told you about Christ. Some of you may not know this, but the very word gospel is actually a Greek compound word that means joyous proclamation. The very word gospel means good news, a proclamation of joy. Let me say this to you. When you move away from the fact that Jesus, the good news about Jesus is a message of joy and you get into, I'm just following Jesus because I have to, because I ought to, I'm doing it out of compliance or obligation or in some sense because I should and it is no longer producing joy in your life, you're missing the gospel. You, you have moved off track. Paul wants us to understand the gospel is a message of joy. Now check this out. I want to show you one other main thing in this section. Look at verse 5. Paul says, the joyful news of the gospel is that there is hope stored up for you in heaven. There's hope stored up for you in heaven. Now, that word stored means saved. It means reserved. It means waiting for you. It means guaranteed. And the idea is this. Heaven is not like money that's at the finish line of a race that will be yours if you finish first. Heaven is not like this prize that you are striving for, that you're trying to attain, that you're trying to get. No, it's money that's already in the bank. It's in, account, in an account, and your name is on it. It's guaranteed. It's already yours. And what Paul is saying is, when you understand this very profound fact about the gospel, it changes everything. Because now, friends, now you are free to live your life with the confidence of knowing that God's eternal love and acceptance for you is guaranteed. It's in the bank. Let me explain it to you this way. When I was in college, I used to practice basketball quite a bit, and um, often when I was in the gym by myself, working out, doing a workout routine, uh, most often, almost every time, I had this little rule for myself, and it was this. Before I left the gym, before I would like finish my workout and leave to go home, I would have to make 20 free throws in a row. I had to make 20. So if I got to like 18 and missed, start again. 20 free throws in a, low in a row before I was allowed to leave. Now, sometimes that made the workout extend a bit. Um, and, and, and maybe you're out there and you're thinking, big deal, I can shoot 23 throws in a row in my sleep. Or maybe um, you're more realistic and you're thinking, like, that sounds pretty tough. Well, let me tell you something. To make 20 free throws in a row when you're in a gym by yourself is actually not that hard. 
When you're all alone in a gym and there's no crowd and there's no pressure and there's no fans and there's no game on the line and the only person who's going to know if you failed is you and the Lord, you can sit there and you can make 20 easily. In fact, most of the time I would get that done pretty quickly. But I'll tell you when it's hard to make 20 free throws in a row. When the game's on the line. When there is a crowd and, the, and your reputation is at stake and people's opinions are obviously, and there's all this pressure, right? You have to prove yourself when you're in the limelight and you have to, to prove that you can do it. That's when it gets tough. And the point is this, Paul says, the good news is this. The good news is that you've already been approved. You've already been proven. The game is already won. You don't have to finish. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. You can now live your life like shooting free throws in the gym all by yourself. All the pressure is off. And friends, when you think about it this way, who plays better in a sporting event? The team that comes in and they're loose and they're relaxed and they're confident and they're assured or the team that feels all the pressure and they're tight and they're tense and they just have to win because everything's on the line. Who plays better? The team that's loose. And God says, your life can now be played in just that way. You can now have the freedom of the assurance that heaven is stored up for you, that it's guaranteed that the money is in the bank. And so Paul says, remember when that truth rammed up against your life. Remember when you heard it and learned it and received it for the very first time. Think back to when the gospel first took root in your life. You know, for me, I... I remember my freshman year in college. I was away from home. I was away from my high school friends. I was away from all the things that had given me safety and security in my life up until this point. And I remember Steve Thompson. Steve was the RA on my dorm floor. And he would come down to my room sometimes. And he would spend time and he would talk to me about the hope that he had in Jesus. And there was something different about Steve. I remember seeing and sensing and feeling something different about him. I remember him inviting me to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes group on campus. I remember going. I remember my heart feeling empty and longing for something more. I remember hearing the gospel again and finally it taking root in my life. I remember that time. And friends, remembering it is good for my soul. It re-centers me. It reminds me. It refocuses me. There is power in remembering. So let me ask you, who was your Epaphras? Do you remember when the good news of Jesus changed your life? Because Paul is saying, remember that you received the gospel. Think about it. Don't forget it. That's the first section. And then Paul prays. He writes this prayer for this church. And in this prayer, what Paul is doing is he is casting a vision for them. In this prayer, Paul is saying, now imagine what could happen. Now imagine what could happen if this Jesus you received actually became king of your entire life. Imagine this. Verse 9. For this reason. For what reason? Because the gospel is so amazing and you've already received it and it's already in you and because the money's already in the bank, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. 
We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. That's the longest sentence in the history of the world. (laughs) Right there. Paul can write a run-on sentence. That's why I love that dude. Um, It's like he's never heard of a period. Comma, 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 comma. Right? Paul says a lot in this section. I'll point out a few things. First, he says, we long, he and Timothy, as they pray, as they think about these Christ followers and pray for them, we want God to fill you, he says. The Greek word there is the word plerao, and it signifies a complete filling. And In fact, it means the absence of anything else, so full that there's not room for anything Thing else. If a glass was plerao'd with water, there would not be any more room. It'd be right to the very brim. This is Paul talking about how he longs for these Christ followers to be thoroughly filled and completely dominated and totally controlled by Jesus. That's what he's driving at here. His vision is that God would completely take control of their life and change everything about them, not just their eternity. That's the vision. He wants them to have, he says, wisdom and understanding. I'm praying you'll have wisdom and understanding. Wisdom was the Greek word that talked about the ability to intellectually comprehend. I want you to understand these deep truths. And then he says understanding. And understanding is the ability to implement what you understand and those principles into your life. So he wants intellect and implementation for them, both with the goal that they would spiritually mature And then here's the goal, and here's the verse I think is actually Paul's reason for writing, what he longs for these Christ followers and what he longs for you and me. Verse 10. This is why I want you to be filled. This is why I want you to have wisdom and understanding, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, so that everything in your life is about pleasing him, so that every part of your life is pleasing to the Father. Now, one important thing to point out here is this is not Paul calling for a rule adherence obedience. This is not Paul saying, my vision for you is that you're so focused and stringent with your religiosity and your rule following that God is pleased with you, that you don't break any rules and you follow all the rules. Because that's what most of us think. Most of us get caught up in this idea that, man, by God's grace, I've been accepted by him and received by him, and then there's, like, money in the bank. That's all God's grace, and now I work really hard to please God for the rest of my life, and that is not the message. That is not how you live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him in every way. Paul's vision is that we would have hearts that would want to obey, that would long to obey, that would find great joy in living for Jesus. Let me explain it to you with an illustration I read this week from Tim Keller, and I love this. Imagine um, with me, if you would, one morning uh, a person who you live with says, hey, would you make me breakfast in bed today? You know, I'm hungry, and I'm really cozy in here. I don't want to get up, and so would you, 
would you make breakfast and serve it to me in bed? Now, there are two ways that you can respond to this. You can say yes or you can say no, right? But if you do say yes, there's actually two ways you can say yes. There's two ways you can actually make and serve the breakfast. There's two different kinds of relationships. One is you really don't care that much for the person who has made this request. They're just an annoying random roommate that you happen to be renting a room to. And, and their happiness and their enjoyment is not that high of a priority to you. And in this case, you might do it. You might make the breakfast in bed, but you'll simply do it out of a sense of obligation. You comply even though you don't get any joy out of doing it yourself. In other words, their pleasure is at the expense of your pleasure. Their pleasure at the expense of your pleasure. But there's another kind of relationship, isn't there? And in this relationship, you deeply love the person. You admire the person. You truly want to please them. It's like you're newly married and it's your husband or your wife, right? Now, in this case, you would not serve the breakfast simply out of obligation, but you would serve the breakfast because you love to make that person happy. In fact, when they have joy, it gives you joy. So in this case, you'd be thinking, of course I'll make you breakfast in bed, not because I have to, but because I love pleasing you, and pleasing you pleases me. Friends, that is what Paul is calling for from us here. That's his vision, that the Holy Spirit would produce in us a love for God so strong that we would love, that we would rejoice, that we would find great pleasure in living a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way. That it wouldn't be some chore, it would be the thing that we love to do. Friends, let me ask you, as we think about this section and Paul's vision for these Christians to grow spiritually, do you have a vision? Do you have a vision to grow and mature spiritually? Do you have a vision to live a life worthy of the Lord and to please him in every way, that every part of your life would be pleasing to him? Or, or are you just happy to sort of coast it in with the money in the bank? Or are you just happy walking through the religious obligations and should-dos and must-dos of church life? Do you have a vision for the kind of relationship with Jesus that Paul talks about here, for him to be your personal king? King of your life personally. That's what Jesus, that's what Paul's talking about here. He said, I have this vision that Jesus could be king of your life personally, that you would love to serve him, that you would love to follow him, that you would love to please him in every way. So Paul has, has offered them a reminder. Now he's shared a vision for them. And in this next section, he's going to tell us why. Paul's going to give us the reason Jesus should be our personal king. He's going to say, I have this vision that Jesus would be your personal king and that you would love him and that you would serve him and you would follow him in every way. And here's why you should do it. Here's why you should adopt this vision that I have for your life. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
Do you see what Paul says here? He says, let me tell you why Jesus is qualified to be your personal king. It's because Jesus is the cosmic king. In this section, Paul lays out one of the most robust theological descriptions of Jesus in the entire Bible. This is one of those places where we will have to come back and go hiking sometime. (laughs) In verse 15, he says, Jesus is equal to God. He actually says, the firstborn over all creation. That's kind of a confusing statement. But it's not a reference to time. He's not the first person born in creation. He's over creation. And in the ancient world, the firstborn was the one who got all the wealth and all the status and all the standing and all the power of the father. The firstborn was actually considered to be equal with the father. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying Jesus is equal with the father. He is equal with the father. He is over everything that's been created just like God. He says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. In other words, Paul's saying, the person we're dealing with here in Jesus is not just a great man. This is not just some religious guru who is a super gifted teacher who is like the best of the best of the best when it came to human beings. No, that is not who Jesus is. Paul says, we are dealing here with the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. Why is he qualified to be your personal king? Because he's the cosmic king. He's the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. Think about that for a minute. The one we sing to, the one we gather to celebrate and learn about and remember is the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. Does that blow your mind? It should, let me help it blow your mind. Do you know that if you could bore a hole in the sun and start dropping earths into it, you could put 1.3 million earths into the sun. You could put 64.3 million moons into our sun. And the sun is actually a small star. The next closest star to us, besides our sun, anyone know what it's called? Alpha Century, it's five times bigger than our sun. And if that's not enough for you, Betelgeuse is another star. It's 880 quadrillion miles away. And are you ready for this? Its diameter is greater than the Earth's orbit around our sun. That's a big star. And what Paul is saying is this. And do you know who made all that stuff? Do you know who it's all been created for? Do you understand that Jesus is king of the entire cosmos? Friends, I think it's pretty safe to say that he can handle being king of your life. You know, right in the middle of this section, Paul says this one little phrase that I love. In him, all things hold together. And and instantly, as a scientist, I start thinking about, like, the gravitational force and the the bond that is, like, innate in the atom and even inside the atom and and just the uh, the amazing creation that we have. You know, the word for hold together, though, is actually a word that was generally used to describe people. 
Paul uses kind of a strange word here. He's talking about the cosmos. He's talking about the universe. He's talking about creation. And then he says, it's all held together. And he uses a, a relational people word. And it's a word that us, usually was used to describe people who were strong and who wouldn't fall apart, who wouldn't crumble under pressure. But again, here he uses it to talk about the cosmos. And he does this on purpose. He's mixing metaphors a little bit. He's saying this because he's saying Jesus created and holds the universe together. He's saying our universe is a cosmos, not a chaos, because of his power and strength. Billions of stars, our planet orbiting the sun at just the right distance and just the right speed and tilted at just the right angle to distribute the right amount of heat and water and oxygen, it's all held together by him. But he uses a personal word here because he's saying, but what about you? What about your life? Is your life a cosmos or a chaos? When life gets hard, is there someone greater holding you together? When life gets tough, is the, the king of the cosmos going to be there to hold you together? Or are you just going to break apart at some point? Is life going to get too hard and you're just going to obliterate? What Paul is saying is to the degree you have your life under the kingship of Jesus, to that degree your life will hold together no matter what happens to you in this world. And so there's this reason to make Jesus your personal king because he's the cosmic king, because in all things he has, the very last word of this section, because in all things he has supremacy. That's a preaching word right there. Supremacy, the supremacy of Christ. I love it. Supremacy means the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, and status. That's Jesus. Paul's saying the one who is supreme in the universe can be, can be, should be, needs to be supreme in your life. And then next Paul moves on and he recalls the result. He reminds them of how Jesus uses his supremeness. Here's what he says. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your own minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Friends, here's what Paul says. He says, Jesus uses all of his cosmic power, all of his vast supremacy, not in a selfish way, but to restore the entire universe. To reconcile to himself, what? All things. What Paul reminds us of here in this moment is that the gospel is not just for you and me. The gospel is not even just for humanity. The gospel is good news for all creation. For the entire world, for the entire solar system, for the entire universe, for galaxies, billions and billions of light years away, it's good news for all of it. It's huge. And then he says, oh yeah, and by the way, you are part of that creation. Once you were alienated from God, but now he has reconciled you to present you holy, 
free from accusation. Friends, notice that nowhere in this section does Paul ever use the word fixed. He never says the universe is broken. Things are messed up. You and your life is broken. The world is messed up. And so Jesus needs to use his supremacy to fix it. He never says that. What what word does he use instead of fixed? What's the word there? Reconciled. He says Jesus uses his supremacy to reconcile. Why does he use that word instead of fixed? Because reconciled is a relational word. Paul is telling us the creation doesn't simply need to be fixed. It needs to be back in right relationship with the creator. You aren't just broken. You are broken, but you aren't just broken. You're alienated from God. Something got between you and God. So Jesus uses his supremacy to reconcile you, to restore your relationship. You see, friends, here's one of the things Paul knows and drives at here and all throughout the New Testament. If Hear this. If the gospel is going to radically change you and fully transform you, if the gospel is truly going to change everything, you must understand that it's about restored relationship between you and God. This is not a transaction. This is not just a religion. This is not just a cosmic mechanic fixing your transmission. This is about God knowing you and walking with you and being relationally connected to you again. And when that happens, everything will change. Too many Christians are just doing religion and wondering why nothing's different. And I do that sometimes too. So Paul recalls this result and says, here's the result. Here's the result of the gospel. And then finally, lastly, he provides an example. Verse 23, he says, this is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you to the word of, the, of God in its fullness. In this last section, I'm not gonna read the whole thing. You can read it on your own. Um, Paul says this. I have become a servant. The word there is the word diakonos. It's the word for deacon. It technically means this. One who executes the commands of a master. I have become a diakonos. I am one who executes the commands of my master. Now, we don't use the word master in our culture too often. But a master has full say and control over the people he masters. <laughs> I have become a servant. I execute the commands of my master. Paul is saying this. He's saying, Jesus has full reign and authority over my life. There's not any area of my life that he doesn't get to direct and lead and touch and challenge and shape and form. I am his servant. And Paul says here, if you want an example, if you want a picture of what a life completely consumed by Jesus looks like, if you want to understand how the gospel of Jesus Christ can sincerely change everything about your life, look at me. Take a look at my life. Jesus has changed my entire life. He's changed my focus, my thinking. He's changed who I care about. 
He's even changed how I suffer. Notice how he says that at the beginning. Now I suffer differently. Now suffering feels different to me. Now I see suffering through a different lens. Everything has changed about my life. And friends, here's the point. We all need examples. We all need examples. We all need people to follow. We all need people to do life with. We all need people who will show us and help us figure out how to follow Jesus in this world. We all need other people to look to if we want the gospel to take root in us and we want Jesus to truly rule and reign in every area. And I can say that I think, you know, one of the biggest problems for us is that we are too often tempted to look for some perfect spiritual guru whose life is completely perfect and holy to learn from. And when we never find those people, we never follow anyone. And Paul, by the way, you know, he says, follow me. He wasn't one of those people. Paul, more than anyone, was aware of his faults and his failures and his shortcomings. He talks about them all throughout the Bible. Imagine being a guy whose faults and failures and misgivings were like recorded in Scripture for all time, for people to read for eternity. What a mess up you are. That's Paul. He has, this isn't a narcissistic statement when he says, follow me, look at me, I'm the example. No, he's not saying I'm perfect. He's not saying I'm completely holy. What he's saying is, I'm the kind of person who's sold out. I long to live a life worthy of the Lord. I long to please him in every area of my life. That's my heart, that's my desire, so follow me in that. And I guess the question is, do you have people like that in your life? Do you have people you can look to and follow Jesus with? Do you have people who can be an example for you, who you can be an example to? You know, in a few weeks, when this series is over, we're going to start a new series in October. It's a seven-week series, and we're calling it We Are. We are, and in this series, we're going to talk about some of the core qualities we believe must define Jesus' followers in our world, and specifically, must define us as a Jesus-following people. I think it's going to be a really, really central, important, culture-shaping series for this church, and so I'm encouraging you already to just commit to being here every Sunday. And more than that, I am asking and hoping and begging of you that you will go through that seven-week series with some other people, that you will take that journey with some others who want to live lives that are pleasing to Jesus. Because, friends, I'm well aware that you can blow off my sermons easily. I see your lives. I watch most of you do it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but there's power in interacting and wrestling and talking and working things through and being vulnerable and having questions and doubts and convictions. There's power in saying, I love how you do that. Can you teach me? And man, I think you need to grow there. And how, what kind of feedback would you want to give me? There's the Christian, what did Jesse say? The Christian life cannot be lived alone. It was never meant to be. And so I'm asking that you would already start to make a commitment in your heart that, yes, for seven weeks I can do anything. For seven weeks I will take this journey with some others who want to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And now this morning as we close, we've already shared communion, and so we're going to close a little differently today. I want to invite you, challenge you, ask you to sing once more to Jesus the king of the cosmos.
the one who used his supremacy and won the victory that you might be reconciled to God. This morning, friends, we are gonna close with praise. We're gonna sing out a declaration that Jesus defeated death, that Jesus robbed the grave, and not just for the universe, but so that I, so that you, so that we might know him and be fully and completely transformed because this gospel, this good news, it changes everything. That's why we're here. That's what we believe. That's what we long for. So how about this? Go ahead and right now just stand to your feet. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come. And we are going to sing and we are going to praise the king of the universe. And we're going to ask him once more to be our personal king. Father, this morning we say all praise and all glory and honor goes to you. We thank you that you're so patient with us. That... That even in moments and in places when our lives aren't pleasing to you, when we're living for ourselves, you continue to chase us and run after us and pull us in. Lord, I ask that this morning, God, you would use this series, this book, these messages to help us surrender more of our lives to you. Because God, I know the more we give to you, the more you'll give to us. And when we're surrendered to you, that's where we find life, abundant, true joy and peace-filled life. So, Father, come, um, move amongst us, shape us, and lead us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name.